Hello and welcome to our viewers on CruxInvestor.com and also to our listeners on CruxCast, our podcast series. And for those of you new to Crux Investor, please click the button in the corner of the screen to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're talking today to Brandon Monroe, the CEO of Bannerman Resources. They're an Australian uranium player. He's going to talk to us about Section 232 and five things you should know. He also sits on the WNA Fuel Report Committee and he's going to talk us through how they put those numbers together. You can check those and other topics in the description below. Please click on the timestamp to go to the relevant part of the video. Good morning, Brandon. How are you? Oh, very well, Matthew. Thanks for having me on again. I really enjoy chatting. Well, it's, no, it's, it's great. That was a great conversation, I thought. You know, a lot of people got a lot out of it. So, you know, um, it's good to be talking again. So a few things have happened since we last talked. Why don't you give us an update on the company? What's Bannerman been doing? Yeah, well, as uh, many of your audience would know, Bannerman Resources has the Itango project in Namibia. It's a very, very large project, 270 million pounds of U308. And Namibia is a fantastic jurisdiction to be doing business in. Not only is it a great country for getting things done, uh, it's a lovely part of Africa, and uh, I'll in fact spend some time there with the family uh, next week, which we're looking oh, forward to. But it's you. also a great uranium mining jurisdiction. We've been mining uranium there for 45 years. All of the infrastructure's in place. Everyone from the society to the government is very comfortable with uranium, very grateful for the contribution that uranium's made to the country. And for that reason, we're permitted and we just don't have many of the challenges that are particular to the commodity of uranium that are experienced in other jurisdictions. Um, so that's our project. It's very advanced, as you know. We completed a DFS back in 2012, and the main activity that's going on on the ground is engineering, picking off aspects of that original DFS and some of the optimization work done since then that could mm. do with a refresh. There's a lot of technology that we looked at back in 2012 that uh, existed but wasn't sufficiently proven that we were prepared to affect what is a low risk profile of a mm. project by introducing new things. Now, obviously things have changed and things have happened and some of those technologies have fallen by the wayside and some of them are well and truly proven. Uh, and examples would be some of the nanotechnology that we've uh, successfully deployed with our program. So we're working on that. And because it's such a massive project, an average of more than seven million pounds per annum, even relatively small and incremental improvements do make a big difference. And we're continuing that process until we get closer to a market that enables us to finance, at which point we'll just draw all of those pieces together and update the DFS work that we've done. Well, that's a really nice segue, actually, because you're, the old, old phrase would be, you're shovel ready, ready to go. There's some optimization which you can, which you can look at in terms of the technologies. <clears throat> but the, the, the big elephant in the room that everyone's been talking about and getting excited about come for 13th, 14th of July this year is the announcement around the Section 32 petition. You have done a lovely five things you need to know about Section 232. So um, you kindly agreed to talk us through that because I, I read it and I was, I was um, I love the sort of simplicity of the way that you laid it out, but it was 
um, very very intelligently laid out. So, can we run through those five things you need to know? Yeah, I love to. Yeah. And uh, I enjoyed writing it, so I'm glad you and a few others enjoyed reading it. Yeah, no, it's been fantastic, really well received. But for those of for people who haven't read it or perhaps not quite aware, so you are energy, energy fuels. Um, and a bit of, bit of help from a couple of other people have submitted this petition um, to the US government. Uh, so why don't you tell us about that just very quickly and then we'll get into the five key points. So they submitted a petition back in January 2018 and it took the whole market by surprise, including the utilities and those of us on the production side. And it came at a time when the market was starting to improve. Uh, Cameco had just announced a couple of months earlier that they were putting MacArthur River onto temporary care and maintenance. And within weeks, we saw Kazadamprom announce supply cuts. So what we saw was a market that was already showing good solid green shoots of improvement that was suddenly surprised by this action. And the petition had the effect that a lot of bids were withdrawn from the spot market whilst utilities and others and traders started to try and make sense of what the implications would be. And for a lot of people, they, although there'd been a little bit of activity in section 232 for aluminium and steel and so forth, for many, many people, they really had to get on Google and start figuring out what this was all about. And we'd been obviously talking to utilities a lot. I'd been in the room with a bunch of them through WNA uh, only a week before the announcement was made. And they were actively preparing procurement strategies and procurement programs. In other words, that's the, the key precursor to reigniting uh, long-term contracting. And all of a sudden they were all iced. No one was prepared to make a move until they knew what the implications were and what it actually meant. So that was a petition now, the petition isn't the investigation. The petition is simply a request or a, um, a petition that the Department of Commerce picks up the investigation. And it's a bit unusual. The ones that are well known, steel, aluminium, autos, they've all been initiated by the Department of Commerce themselves with a bit of insistence from the White House. So this one was a little bit different. And what followed was another six months of uncertainty whilst we waited to know if the Department of Commerce was going to pick the thing up, ignore it, or do something totally different. And so that broke July in 2018. And at least at that point, we knew, well, something's happening. And the statutory timeframes that exist under that Trade Expansion Act started to kick in. Fast forward, almost 12 months, as you say, and the process is coming to the end because the Trump administration now needs to make a decision on whether they accept the Department of Commerce's recommendation that there are trade actions that threaten to impair national security, and if so, what actions, if any, will be taken. And as you say, that's 13th of July in the US, so 14th of July for most of the rest of us. Okay, so why, why don't we um, look at the five points that you've identified that people need to think about here? Um, and the, the first thing is, what's the likely outcome? That's a, that's a big question. But you yeah, say- Yeah, and one problem... that I'm asked the whole time, as you would well expect. And yeah. the point that I make is there is an array of outcomes here, and it's impossible to say 
this one's more likely than that one. And this is the one that I think is going to happen. And uh, I know that some of my friends will start poking fun at me because I am a lawyer by background, but I promise you I'm not one of those lawyers who is uh, too scared to ever make a prediction. As, as you'll remember from the last time I was on, I'm mm -hmm. prepared to put myself out there if I believe something. In this case, there are so many outcomes. We've got an administration that has benefited in various sorts of negotiations by remaining unpredictable and has a history of approaching these things in a very unconventional way. And also when you look at the merits of the case, I think you've got a very even hand between the utilities who are opposing the, uh, the investigation and any remedies and the proposition on which it's been based, which is the US imports almost all of its uranium which opens it up for a potential impairment of national security. You, you said something, so which I, which we ha haven't really been discussing with the uranium companies. You're saying that the <coughs> utility companies are opposing the the basis of the petition. Is that what you just said? Yes, very strongly. And, and, and on what basis are they opposing it? What what's what's the what's the problem that it will cause for them? So the primary argument from the utilities is that any uh, trade action, particularly the quota and obviously a tariff, will increase their costs. Uh, and they uh, obtained some economic analysis that they have on their website and that they've filed with the Department of Commerce during the process, which indicates somewhere between a 500 and 800 million dollar impost uh, compared with what they can currently buy on spot. Now, there's a few arguments that you might levy against that. For a start, um, they aren't paying what they can currently buy on spot. Uh, they are paying blended prices, and that's quite transparent and significantly above what they can buy on spot at the moment. But the fear is and the concern from them is that a 25% quota would create a marginal cost of at least $70 a pound in order to incentivize enough US production to meet that requirement. Now, the argument with the utilities, which I think has been very intelligently and strategically made, is it's a tipping point argument. So as many of your listeners would know, U308 as a component of nuclear fuel is a very small part of the cost of producing nuclear power. The cost of uranium is typically about 6% of the cost of producing nuclear power. The vast bulk is capital, then followed by things like green tape, compliance and um, all of the uh, necessary procedural matters that you have to have around it. And then followed by nuclear fuel of which uranium is the U308 is only a small proportion. So 6% of the cost of American nuclear power is uranium compared with say gas or coal, where it's often up to about 80% of the cost. Yeah. So the cost of nuclear power, and this is one of the beauties of it as an energy source, is it's relatively price inelastic to the cost of uranium. So the utilities have had to frame up their argument as more of a tipping point argument. They can't just say, oh, you increase the cost of uranium and we're going to go out of business. They have to point to vulnerable reactors in the merchant power markets that are already under pressure largely because of renewable subsidies, but also because of cheap gas. Perhaps there are only one or two reactors which make them less economic to run than a large power station with four or six reactors. And 
they've basically said any further pressure might be the straw that breaks the camel's back here and President Trump, you will have the responsibility for job losses if we need to close any more plants. Yeah. So that's yeah. been the strength of the utilities argument. And, you know, we need to caution uranium investors that that can be a very strong argument when they're such a big employer. I can, I can see that, but, you know, if it, maybe we should discuss that later because I think, I think it's, it, it, it uh, comes up in one of your um, points when you talk about the, the different scenarios. But just to finish off on this, you're, the likely outcomes, you don't think there is one because the unpredictability of Trump seems to be the, you know, a key, key driver here. Um, we're certainly not, there's not going to be any single outcome. It's going it, to, but who can tell, but who can tell. Um, but what happens if there is a delay? What, what is that? What's the impact of that, this 180-day uh, component which the automotive industry took advantage of? Yes, yeah, so there is the possibility of a delay. It could be a temporary delay. So under the Act, the administration has to make a decision by the 13th of July, but it can take another 15 days to implement the decision, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also the possibility that you might see the administration taking a, uh, a liberal view of the way that the Act is uh, drafted, which means their obligation to report back to Congress is only 30 days after that. So they might interpret it in such a way where they don't have to announce their decision for as long as 45 days, as long as they're implementing in the meantime. I think that's fairly unlikely, but we are dealing with an unpredictable administration here. Um, the other possibility is that uh, the administration says that our solution or our decision here is to engage in trade negotiations, which then gives them up to another six months. And that is, as you say, what happened in autos. And I note that uh, the, uh, the senior representative of the Kazakh government was uh, at the White House just during the week. So that might be pure coincidence. It might be lobbying or delivering some bad news on the part of the White House. Um, but regardless of what it does, what it does do is give something of a preface for saying there will be trade negotiations and therefore we'd like to buy another six months. So it is a possibility. Now, what that means is it will certainly test the patience of uranium investors. There's no doubt about that. It's been a long time for us waiting as investors for this to be resolved. It'll put a lot of pressure on any uranium companies that need to raise capital. Uh, it will be fine for a company like Bannerman. We've still got more than $6 million in the bank in a very low burn. So we will sail through. We will be fine. It'll probably even open up opportunities for us if we see other companies and their assets under distress. But it will test the patience. Well, I, we see that, see that, that's, a, that's a topic which I've discussed recently with, with quite a few uranium companies. And we did bring it up when we spoke in terms of junior companies have got so much cash this delay, this potential delay, or you know, of whatever time frame it is, is going to cause people to go, need to go and raise capital because, and the and the thing is, investors, they're in this. I can't see how investors get out of it, go play somewhere else, and come back, come back in because no one knows when this thing's going to pop, and I think people are frightened of missing the party when it does, but at the same time. It is deeply frustrating. I'm, I'm being told by you know funds and told by the companies that, that their investors are very frustrated by the whole process. Um, so you know I, I agree with you, but 
you know, I, we know of a couple of companies who've had to go and raise raise money, and it's it's expensive at this point. But you're you're okay. Oh, okay. we're fine. And what it will do in the medium term will be essentially positive. And the reason I say this is a three to six month delay won't be long enough that yeah. utilities need to change their strategy in the meantime. They will simply sit it out. That'll further consume inventory. It'll tighten things up in the market, but it will put additional pressure on the spring that is uranium supply and demand dynamics. So what it means is three years from now, there will be greater upside volatility on the uranium price. And in the context of very significant pressure being there already because of the imminency of uh, the US long-term contracts rolling off and their need to recontract. So it certainly wouldn't be all bad. It would just be a difficult period for some companies for the next six months. But, you, but where's, the whole thing about T32 is people just want a decision one way or the other. Almost, it's almost irrelevant what the decision is. It's just make a decision, give us, kind of like Brexit here actually, um, give us a decision. We know where we are. We know, we know how to make plans you know, in that basis. So because uranium, there are stockpiles of uranium. No one's able to give me a number of what that, what that looks like. Um, but at some point that's, that's, that's running down clearly. And there's going to be, as you say, a gap in production if we're not careful if this thing does keep going on for very much longer because the money or cheap money is not there to enable companies to get going. Yeah, that's right. And I think while we're talking about all this, we should emphasize, I don't think a delay is a probable outcome. It's one of the many outcomes. And we're going to have a much better idea about this in just over a week's time. So it's well worth investors having it in the back of their mind and probably building their strategies around what happens if there is a delay. Uh, but as you say, any decision is positive, because it uh, enables the market to get on with it and creates certainty that hasn't been there for 18 months. Well, let's talk about the second thing that you, you mentioned in your doc in your document. Um, investors must have a balanced perspective. Now, this is a question I ask everyone. And I asked you, you, you gave us your opinion. And um, it's this, do you, is this kind of uh, fervor, you know, America first doctrine on, on one side, and then it seems to be the rest of the world on the other. Um, whether people believe it's a security issue or commercial decision, a commercial commercial proposition, it, it's it's divided the room. Okay, um, what's your take? Well, remind everyone of what your take is on this. So I think there are sufficient grounds for the administration to find that their importation of nuclear fuel, whether it's uranium conversion, enrichment, or fabrication, does threaten to impair national security. However, and what does that mean? What does national security mean? Well, it depends on the administration. If you look back over time since 1962, when this uh, part of the Trade Expansion Act was introduced, uh, there's been uh, three dozen different investigations of this nature, and only a small proportion of those have actually found that uh, the relevant trade practice threatens to impair national security. But we've had it in steel, aluminium, and even autos. So it seems like we're the interpretation of that view is somewhat 
more concerned than what it has been in recent times. I mean, if Mercedes-Benz and Hyundai can impair national security by delivering pretty good motor cars, uh, then I have no difficulty finding that a reliance on Kazakhstan for the world's cheapest uranium can impair the electricity source for one in five households. What it means, I've got no idea. But uh, you, as a lawyer, we use precedent the whole time. And I've got three very strong precedents to suggest that we have a situation to impair national security here. Um, now, my take on it, though, is that that's not really the issue here. The issue here, as we discussed last time, is that the world's biggest industrial economy is fast becoming a nobody when it comes to a technology-driven power source that still powers a, more than a tenth of the world's electricity and is expected to grow with strong climate change fundamental policies behind it. How can the US even be in that situation? It wasn't that long ago that they absolutely dominated the nuclear power industry and they find themselves not producing any uranium, not having any conversion capacity, having very little uh, enrichment capacity that they can control and virtually building no reactors around the world. Uh, they've given ground not only to their Western arch rivals, the French and uh, Electricity de France, but they've also given huge ground to Rosatom out of Russia, CNNC and CGN out of China and even South Korea. So they've been relegated outside the top five uh, because essentially of government policy and stress on their domestic nuclear fleet for the reasons that we've described. So that for me is what needs to be solved here. But you, you quote, you quote, um, well, a, a couple of quotes from you. You say that AHUG, who was the, uh, the American, what, what does it stand for again? Got it. Okay. Um, they have, you said cleverly, positioned themselves as being vulnerable to uranium prices. But the uranium sector itself employs currently about 500 jobs. If it comes back, may create 3,000 jobs. It, it's, it's not on the register. It's, it's nothing. That's, a, that's a, just a medium-sized company in the, in the States, right? But the nuclear industry, about 100,000 jobs. But you can buy uranium. If you, if you say, I can buy uranium anywhere in the world, my nu the nuclear industry jobs are safe. It's not an issue. 500 jobs, is, you know, you don't have many lobbyists for 500 jobs. Is that, is that part of the problem? That's part of the challenge for the petitioners and for US uh, uranium producers and developers. Uh, it's a challenge in the context of an administration that's been very jobs focused and prefers solutions that can be expressed succinctly and in relatively simple terms. So jobs, jobs, jobs is a much easier argument to make than some of the more nuanced, equally valid arguments that are being made by the petitioners. Right, okay, okay. Well, look, I, you know, I, I guess that'll be answered in, the, in like I say, in the next, next couple of uh, weeks. Um, but just let's try and hypothesize what the possible outcomes could be, because you, you talk in your document about quotas and tariffs, and there's, there's a, I think, five different scenarios or pos possible uh, solutions, um, not necessarily, you know, one, but maybe a bit of all five. But let's start with domestic quotas. So the petitioners for your audience 
requested a 25% domestic quota. Uh, now, to put that in context, they would need to move from current production, which is a bit less than a million pounds per annum, to between 12 and 14 million pounds per annum. The uranium resources are there, but there certainly aren't shovel-ready projects that can turn that on quickly. So it will take time. It will take an adjustment period. Mm -hmm. And as I pointed out, there was a leak from the Department of Commerce to Bloomberg that suggested a 5% initial tariff that escalates by 5% per year. Bloomberg didn't go as far as reporting if it escalates all the way to 25% or not, uh, but one might expect that it would. And that's consistent with the general view, which is that 12 to 14 million pounds couldn't possibly come on in less than about five years. Now, the thing is that these leaks are very rarely done by accident, right? Um, it's usually, and I dare say in this case, in order to test the waters a little bit amongst the key stakeholders. So the leak gets out there and the Department of Commerce and the White House sits back and waits for the reaction. Which and, was? Well, uh, from the point of view of the utilities, I mean, think about it. They've been at this, hard at this for 18 months now. They're almost yep. at the end. Uh, they're not going to give up now. So they came back with a, what I understand was a very strong response to that, which served as a warning that no, you can't test the waters with us on this because that won't make us happy. It's a little bit like uh, someone's been training for a marathon for 18 months. It's race day. They're out there. They've been running hard for three or four hours and they're 100 metres from the finishing line. You know, that's not the point to sit down and have a cup of tea. You've got to grit up and finish it. And that's where we're at with the utilities. So that's the, I'm, I'm confident that that's a message that's come back to the Department of Commerce on that. Right. So, and, and I think uh, the domestic quota, apart from the time aspect and the capacity to adjust, which was foreshadowed in that leak, there's also a question of to whether it should be 25%, whether it should be 15%, perhaps even 10%. And it's relevant because the marginal cost or incentive price that would be needed to push from, say, a 10% to a 25% is quite significant. Um, there's enough mid-cost assets in the U.S. that could probably produce at a cost at a um, price of call $55 a pound to satisfy 10%. But once you start going beyond that, uh, you've really got to offer a lot more than that to incentivize these smallish U.S. projects. And um, the analysis that I cite in my article is that you need to get $70 a pound to start bringing on those extra projects. And, and we're a long ways from that, so I, I, I can't imagine too many people are happy about that. But, you know, well, apart from maybe the Canadians and Kazakhs who are producing a lot, lot cheaper than cheaper than that, um, which I guess we'll talk about when we get into some ge geopolitics in, in a bit. Um, so people should go and take a look at this document and look at the diagram, the uh, Red Cloud uh, KS estimates, which you referenced earlier. Um, let's talk about quota with allies as an option. Yeah, so that could take two forms. It could be a quota, call it 25%, that's both domestic US production, but also would allow, for example, Canada. So there has been some preemptive trade negotiations uh, between the Trudeau administration and the Trump administration. There's an agreement that if there are uh, trade actions on uranium that uh, adversely affect Canada, that there will be a stall of the implementation of those while they're discussed. Um, now, 
so Canada would be a logical uh, candidate for inclusion. Mm -hmm. There's a chance that Australia would lobby to be included as well as they were with uh, uh, steel. And if the US objective here is to try and maintain open markets amongst non-aligned friendly nations, which you can read as non-CIS, non-Chinese nations, then it would be very logical to open the door to Africa as well. And Namibia is the fourth largest producer of uranium in the world, and Niger is the fifth largest producer of uranium. Well, it's an, it's an, it's an interesting one, because this is the equivalent of um, you know, pick, being, pick, picking a team at school, right? You've, you've got to work out who, you're, uh, who you want to be friends with and who you don't, because there's a kind of very clear divide between you know, China and Russia making friends in Africa, you know, where you are, the French, making they've, they've been there a long time you know you've got wherever there's 14 countries that are that speak french in africa um and you know and the us which tries to have some kind of influence and i think we spoke about this last time is sort of waning influence in africa um for, for most things because you know russia china the french have been putting money in there for a long time and It'd be interesting to see how that turns out. You know, who gets picked for the team? Well, absolutely. And the team Niger is uh, very much dominated by France. Uh, the production is dominated by France, of course. The mines are majority owned by France. But also, as a sovereign nation, France is responsible for providing an enormous amount of bilateral support and security to enable those mines to carry on in Niger. And mm. uranium is important to a country like Namibia, but it is absolutely vital to a country like Niger. So there isn't, there are some companies that you've spoken to who are doing great work in Niger, uh, but it's not as open as a place like Namibia, for example, uh, which has Russian investment, it has Chinese investment, it has Indian investment, it has Australian, Canadian, US, South African investment as well. Um, so that's the team that everyone wants to be on, I'd like to say. But it's certainly the team that you don't want to pick a fight with in school because you could find yourself being squeezed right out. And that's the conundrum that the US would face if it does start picking friends. Uh, yeah. It can either go up to Namibia and say, come and play with us, or it can punch Namibia in the nose and have them run off to the Chinese and the Russians for consolation. Yeah. Yeah, so very well. I say to keep the analogy going, it's 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 playground politics, um, you know, in force here, and you know, there's a lot more to it than just uranium. There are other other things at, at play here. So, again, maybe one to 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 look at. The next thing you talk about is tariffs. Now, tariff, we've seen a lot of talk about tariffs in the market. Obviously, with Trump in China recently, North Korea, etc. What's your take on this as a possible option? I think it's possible. It doesn't make right. much sense because yeah. the the Kazakh production is so competitive compared to U.S. production that it would need to be an enormous tariff to actually try and create some level of parity, economic parity. But well, you, it's easy. You, you you quote a huge number in here. You, you're saying the the tariff would need to be somewhere in excess of two hundred percent to make economic sense, and clearly, that's insane. If if you look at the if you look at the cost of Kazakh production compared to the marginal cost of U.S. production, 
uh, it is in the range of somewhere between 100 and 300 percent to start making mm. sense. Um, yes. A 20% tariff is not going to make Kazakh production uncompetitive at all, but it will irritate the utilities and it'll irritate the miners as well. Yeah, for sure. So, but a tariff, it's simple. It can be implemented quickly. It can be withdrawn quickly. And there's another variation, which is halfway between the quota and the tariff. And that is a limitation, much as what we have with the Russian suspension agreement on Kazakh and Uzbek and potentially Chinese production. So rather than saying these are the schoolboys and girls that I want on my team, it would be more saying we can't allow those people onto the playground. That or you're not allowed to pick all of the best players in the one team. You can only have one good player in each team. And so that would be the, the alternative which would be more constructive. And it's it's got precedent. As I say, there's the Russian suspension agreement but also Euratom has uh, quotas effectively or has limitations on how much of the Euratom state member, the utilities in Europe can import from any one supply source. And uh, so that would be a constructive way of resolving the national security limitations, although it wouldn't actually help the petitioners as much as they'd get from a quota. Yeah, I think that, that's a particularly complicated solution. Um, again, Let's let's see let's see what comes up. You know, you talk about um, you talk next about uh, a no trade action. I mean, is that is that is that a reality? Possibility. Yeah, I, think, I think it is. So what I mean by that is uh, no protectionist measures, but the opportunity to improve the health of either the nuclear power industry or the uranium miners through exercising the Section 232 powers in other ways. So it could be as simple as cutting some of the green tape that exists. It might be creating a subsidies regime for nuclear power beyond the uh, ZEC or zero emission credits that are implemented in a number of states. Uh, it could be fixing some of the distortions in the renewables subsidy regime that uh, particularly and unfairly hurts nuclear power. There's a bunch of different things that could be done here and uh, I sometimes wonder if at the heart of the utilities strategy it's about drawing attention to this tipping point argument as a way to get the attention of the administration to some of their other grievances which are uh, entirely appropriate grievances to air and uh, it would be great to see the administration actually tackle those it would be very constructive for the industry and also it would be good for the health of the US nuclear power industry. It, it, it would, but I, I guess there's a lot of other things fighting for share of voice uh, going on out there and no one really wants to get into this level of admin. So, you know, that, that's the difficulty here. So I, I again, one, one, one to watch, but um, seems un, unlikely given the rhetoric at the moment, but We'll see. Um, you talk about Department of Defense procurement because clearly the heart of this, the emotional heart of this is the nuclear fleet. And is there a bifurcation of the market necessary to deal with that? Well, this would be an extremely constructive outcome. It would address the concerns for national security in a very direct way. And if the Department of Defense was to 
sign a contract over say 10 years for four or five or six million pounds per annum, it would top up its reserves of uranium in a very appropriate way. It would draw out all of the concerns that the petitioners have. And at that level, it, there would be enough to go around to the other immediate producers as well. It would keep the utilities happy because there'd be no trade action that levied against them. And most importantly, it would be a great thing for the uranium sector because not only would we have certainty in a way that doesn't create admin for other um, players, but also it creates a new demand source. There's been a lot of talk that the Department of Defence is well provisioned for uranium, but there are a few things that are happening at the moment that would see those stocks drawn down a lot faster. Um, one of the ones that I point to in the article is the demand or uh, request for HALU, which is um, it's basically 20% uranium rather than the 3 to 5% uranium that's put into nuclear power plants. This uranium is used for some of the new technologies, some of the generation four technologies that Bill Gates is pushing and that has a lot of bipartisan support within the US Congress. Uh, so I think that's something we will see. Uh, we'll see it develop. We'll see the uh, Department of Defense and the US government uh, enabling their technology ventures to produce this new technology through that. And that brings forward quite rapidly the depletion date for these Department of Defense reserves. So I'm still hopeful, again, it's not probable or likely, but I'm hopeful that we would see action from Department of Defense. And we do know that they're engaged in the process. Well, that's, that's, that's interesting. And probably one for another day is, is the technological advance uh, in, in the space, you know, with people like Bill Gates putting his money where his mouth is um, and, and others, um, because I think people are putting a lot of store in that. Um, as part of the solution going forward as well. Um, the, the final uh, component of this is the quota for US controlled uranium. Now, what, what do you mean by that? Because again, that feels like pick a team, but we're gonna have a little bit more control. Yeah, so this one's probably a lot less likely, partly because it hasn't been mooted so far, and partly because it's very much in the, the nuanced range of outcomes here. Mm. Uh, but if I was President Trump, what I would do here is I would use this opportunity to expand the US influence around the world in direct competition with China, Russia, Middle East and other uh, sovereign nations that have a big appetite for uranium. And it goes back to the earlier comments that the US is using it, uh, losing its relevance in the nuclear power industry at a time when the playbook that Russia has been very successful with and China is trying to compete with in the Belt and Road Initiative is to build nuclear power reactors on a build own operate model. So uh, if you look at Turkey or Bangladesh, for example, Ros Adam goes in there. All that Bangladesh needs to provide is a site and the domestic country approvals. Ros Adam finances, they build, they operate, they train the Bangladeshi employees over time. But very importantly, what they do is they provide the nuclear fuel and take the waste away at the end. So they just need an offtake and a site to be able to do that. Um, tremendously valuable and uh, persuasive method of building nuclear reactors, particularly amongst the developing world, which is obviously China's focus on the Belt and Road. 
So they've got an appetite for uranium well below, well beyond their own domestic borders. And that is where the US could get completely squeezed out. They could become totally dependent on uh, Kazakhstan and a small handful of commercial operators in Australia and Canada if they don't address this in some way. And the most powerful way that America addresses these types of things is using capitalism to its advantage. So if the administration was, for example, to say, we will create a quota, we will give privileged access to the world's biggest nuclear fleet in the US, but the way it works is it has to be American controlled uranium, whether it comes from inside the borders of America or elsewhere, that would enable public companies to have an additional competitive advantage, which means they could go and compete with various uranium assets versus the Chinese and the Russians and the Middle Easterns and so forth and the Indians. <clears throat> so, how does, so how does the US deal with this? Um, because that whole PPP model is being, has been used by the Chinese, but now by Russians, now by the French, for a long time. I, I've worked in Africa for a long time and you saw huge infrastructure projects being paid by these countries in exchange for mineral rights obviously and obviously now with you know uranium being highly topical uh at the moment and i say a very emotive topic at, at, at that um how do the u.s use their financial might their financial control the u.s dollar to affect that decision making because if they can't supply alternative energy solutions why shouldn't bangladesh why shouldn't the uae why shouldn't these countries take up the offer of this, you know, zero carbon energy source paid for, built by, run by competitors of the of the of the US? Well, clearly, from their perspective, they should and they are. Uh, Rosatom, the Russians are building in uh, in almost a dozen jurisdictions around the world at the moment, and they're in uh, advanced negotiations with another 10 countries everywhere from Bangladesh and Turkey through to Egypt and uh, mm. Kenya, for example. Um, so it has been a very successful model, particularly given the capital costs involved in nuclear. And it's very attractive to Russia and China because it creates a bilateral umbilical cord that lasts over many, many decades. Uh, so from the US point of view, my personal opinion is that the horse is well and truly bolted here. And it's probably bolted for all of the West, maybe with the exception of South Korea, if they can sort out their own domestic quandary on nuclear power. But the US still has an opportunity with Gen 4 reactors and new technologies, uh, small modular reactors, for example, and that's where the Bill Gates push with new, uh, various reactor designs such as New Scale. There's still an opportunity there. And also, the US still has to protect a large nuclear fleet. So the issue here is maintaining relevance on the one hand, but also ensuring it doesn't get totally squeezed out from the success of the Russian and Chinese um, reactor For programs. Sure. But, but what, are, what are the levers that the US can pull here? Because typically, it's been using the US dollar. That, that's been a big, big lever. I've, I've seen it work in South Sudan. Uh, and other places across Africa, where it's not—it's not—it's—it's uh, it's, it, you know—it's—it's it's, it's hard-handed approach to it, but they kind of get what they want as a result, um, the implied threat, etc. But 
that's not working anymore. So do they need to just say, look, we're not going. That's a battle we can't win. So security issue at home. That's another topic. But how how do we remain relevant in Africa, the Middle East, the West, with regards to energy? Do they need to go and own, you know, renewables, other forms of renewable? Do they, what do they need to do? What do you think their their these levers are? Well, there's no easy answer at the moment for the US. And uh, as as you know, we both really enjoy a good geopolitical discussion. And your point yeah. about the US dollar is quite right. Whether it's influence from cryptocurrencies eroding the monopoly that the US dollars had on cross-border financing, or whether it's the resilience that countries like Iran are needing to show in order to get on with life when they're deprived of US dollars and all of the financial center around them. So over time, we do see that mechanism decrease. The US still has a defense capability and the dominant defense capability in the world. Um, At a time when, whilst we are seeing China uh, implement um, more assertive measures in South China Sea and so on, um, China doesn't appear to be trying to challenge particularly the Navy, but also the other defense capability of the US in in a direct way. So one would expect that that is the US's main avenue for trying to deploy energy uh, influence, in which case it needs to do it amongst its direct allies. And that's quite contradictory to a lot of the policy that we're seeing from the Trump administration. That, that, but that, that's kind of tantamount to gunboat policy, which the British employed in Hong Kong. You know, that, that, surely that is not a reasonable form of commercial economic expansion anymore. I would agree. So then where do they go? And I guess that's the the point that you're raising. Um, So one of the potential answers there is through technology ascendancy. Um, And as as you know, there's a lot of commentators who believe that that's really what's behind the Trump position on the uh, trade war with China, that they need to arrest the erosion of technology ascendancy. And that then does bring us back to the next generation nuclear power technologies and the US still has a competitive advantage on the technology front, although it's losing a lot of that competitive advantage to Russia and China because of a regulatory perspective. So they're bogged down and they need to accelerate that regulatory approval process and commercialization before they lose that technology ascendancy. I'd agree with that. And if anyone listening to this has got some views on that one, you know, post them to the, the YouTube channel or uh, on Twitter. I'd be delighted to hear uh, what people think about that. Um, fourth point, you're, you're talking about all outcomes strengthening the uranium market. Now, I think you and I are going to disagree here. So tell me, what, tell me your view. <laughs> yeah, so my view simply, and then, then please challenge me on it. because I, love I will. I will. My, my view in simple terms is I've had a deep dive on all yeah. of the potential outcomes here. And I can't find one that doesn't lead to a strengthening uranium market. Even the outcomes that are neutral, possibly even negative, on the face of it for the uranium price, they're totally overwhelmed by the resumption of certainty and the resumption of market activity as the the nuclear power cycle, the nuclear fuel cycle can just get on with life after 18 months of uncertainty. So that's that's the premise. The, the bit I agree about is I think it's good for the market clearly, okay, as, as a whole. 
But you, you say in here that you know it's a common perception that there will be win there will be winners and losers, and and you, you say well, actually there's going to be no bad outcome for uranium investors. Look, at the end of the day, mining is mining. The market is the market. Things go wrong, and people still need you know that that quote people throw at you you know you know high tide raises all boats. It's it's true to a point, but there are going to be companies who are better equipped than others, and investors still need to remember the basics or the fundamentals of investing. You've got to trust the team. You've got to believe that the asset is fundamentally a good one. Is it going to be economically mined, and does it have a route to market and the people to know how to get into the market? Because uranium is more complex commodity than gold than copper than nickel because of the the the, the predominant buying cycles of of, of contract so i think uranium more than others people need to think who they put their money with you know we've talked with some companies and they go oh we're in the right postcode it's all fine or you know we've done this before it'll be fine and it's 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 never fine it, it's it's there's a lot of hard work you know, mining's a tough business. So um, I think my point is, investors, please remember the fundamentals here and don't get swept away by the euphoria of this this huge wave of uh, enthusiasm for the uranium space. So that that that's why I, th I think slightly differs from you. Yeah, and, and I don't think we're disagreeing with each other here okay. at all, Matthew. My, my point is that from a uranium market point of view, the commodity market, mm. it's all positive. Now, from an equities point of view, uh, there, there'll be differing effects on some of the players. Some of the players are already trading at a premium, pricing in some of the expectation from 232. There are disappointing outcomes for those companies. Mm. Um, even as uranium price goes up, some companies will outperform others and they'll see a flow of capital towards that performance, which will... Uh, impact other companies and as you say they're in any industry including uranium there are pretenders out there and those pretenders will be found out as more people start to analyze the sector and as sentiment improves so uh, i agree with everything that you just said perhaps i should have been a, a bit clearer that i'm talking about the commodity market i can't see a scenario where the commodity market doesn't benefit so if you're already positioned as an investor in a quality uranium story and I would certainly advocate Bannerman as being one of those. If you position in a quality uranium story, well, things are about to get better as long as we see a decision and as long as it's a clear decision that can be interpreted and understood. And I, th I think that's interesting. I had an interesting conversation with someone yesterday, a uranium company, and they were, they were talking about, you know, we're in, we're in the right postcode. Indeed, in the right postcode, but they've just started. They've just started exploration drilling, and I, and I think they will probably do quite well. But as happened in the last cycle, a lot of new companies, a lot of new entrants into the marketplace uh, who didn't make it. Some had good assets, some didn't, but it's a question of timing. You guys have got your DFS. You're, let's shovel ready, ready to go, uh, just waiting on this, uh, this certainty in the market. So let's, let's talk about your last point, which is the enduring legacy of the 232 petition, which is what do you think people will have learned from this process and you know how can we use this positively going forward so the first thing that's happened on the positive front is it has created a lot of attention for the uranium sector particularly in the us 
Mm. It's had people thinking about uranium that probably haven't given it any thought since the heady days of 2007. And we're seeing that at a time when there's a lot more commentary on the sector. We've had people who are uh, in a public sense quite new to it, yourself being a great example, putting a lot of effort and a lot of intellect and a lot of thought and analysis into the sector. And that's been largely helped along by 232. Um, in terms of a more enduring legacy, I think we're seeing far more attention being put on geopolitical risk and geopolitical issues. So I've said for a long time, and I used to start some of my presentations with a Venn diagram that had supply, demand and geopolitics. And that is a very particular and important aspect of the uranium sector. You can't just simply look at supply and demand, you have to look at geopolitics to be able to interpret not only the sector at a macro level, but also different stocks and different opportunities and different assets. Uh, you always need to pass a macroeconomic, uh, a geopolitical filter over an uranium asset and a uranium company to be able to value their prospects going forward. So it's been a helpful reminder for investors of that fact. I think it's likely to ramp up the geopolitical stakes even further. And I'm of the view that we have a greater level of geopolitical tension in the world than we've had since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, the difference back then was the, the major geopolitical event had a dampening effect on uranium because it led to a flood of downblended Soviet era warheads through the megatons and megawatts program. Here we've got the opposite happening. We've got very high levels of geopolitical tension across a number of world stages that will have the effect of ramping up supply uncertainties and supply risk to the nuclear power industry. And we're only at the very beginning of understanding the implications of that. Um, one of the points that I make in my article is it's very easy to simply ignore those risks when prices are cheap. You can look past them, you can figure, well, this is perhaps just for the next few years. We'll just, we just won't worry about who we're buying our uranium for or how concentrated our book has become because, wow, the, at sub $30, this is just such a bargain. In the same way that I suppose some shoppers will overlook quality if, they, if they're buying something at a third of the price that they normally do. That'll change. And as it changes, not only the utilities will become more focused on that, but the sovereigns will become more focused on that. Uranium investors will become more focused on that. And all of those things that some of us in the sector have been saying for a number of years in terms of geopolitical positioning will come to be. So investors with anything more than the very shortest of timeframes for the investment decision really need to be looking at that because it will create winners and losers as this geopolitical risk plays out. Absolutely. So you finish off with a, a line which says, you know, we'll ask the question, will the US be a catalyst or a bystander in the next two weeks? What's your bet? I, I do think catalyst. I do think catalyst. I think we've got an administration that has proved to be fearless on these issues, happy to be unconventional, happier to be unconventional, you might say, and certainly willing to enable chaos, either deliberately or uh, accidentally, as an outcome from its decisions. And chaos is an outcome that we could well see from this. Chaos in itself will become a catalyst. Uh, so the outcomes that might uh, relegate the US to being a bystander 
are less likely than the ones that will either show leadership from the US in some of the reasons we've described or be some other form of catalyst because the market gets thrown into relative chaos. Well, it'll be interesting to see who the winners are, whether the US is a leader or whether they're going to have to come up with an alternative plan. Let's wait and see. Um, and so just to finish off, um, I did, you're involved with the WNA. You're, you're, you're in one of the groups there. I think you're co-chair of the, the fuel report. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I'm co-chair of the demand group. I also sit on the uranium supply group and I also sit on the secondary supply group. So I'm involved in three committees, um, but my involvement is much greater in the nuclear demand group. So uh, for your listeners, that's a working group established within the WNA uh, consisting of a bunch of utilities, uh, some uranium producers and other market participants, including traders and so on, that is responsible for forecasting and articulating three demand scenarios for nuclear power and therefore uranium between now and 2040. So WNA have got a symposium in London in September. They're going to release the, the biannual fuel report. Yeah. Um, some people are seeing that, or I guess hoping that that is yet another catalyst on top of the T310 announcement. Um, so just just gives us sort of the outline of what is contained, just you know, just very quickly, in the in the fuel report. Yeah. So um, last year's report looks like this. So quite a thick document. So sorry, does it come out? Of, does it come out annually or, or biannually? Every, every second year. I beg your pardon. Every second so year. Last report, okay. Not last year, but the 2017 report. Got it. Um, and so it has chapters that deal with demand, of course, and various aspects of that, secondary supply, primary uranium supply, conversion, enrichment, fabrication, and of course, conclusions. Uh, it's a very rigorous process. So there's a detailed model behind all of this. If there's been a criticism that's levied against the process, it's because the restrictions on uh, cartels and so forth, mean that when a bunch of uranium producers get in the same room and a bunch of utilities get in the same room, they can't talk price. And right. in past years, I think the industry's fallen into the trap of stepping back too far from that line. And the whole concept of economics has fallen out of this report. So last year, the conclusion was there's plenty of uranium. Sure, there is plenty of uranium at $100 a pound, but there's bugger all at $20 a pound, as the price was when the report was released. And I think that affected the credibility of it, particularly for the audiences that were more financially literate. Uh, so this has been my first uh, report that I'm chairing that committee. And I think what we will see in the next report is a lot more focus on economics. It still won't talk about price and it can't talk about price, but there will be a lot more focus on economic paradigms. Uh, we've introduced, for example, different supply scenarios. So not only demand scenarios, but supply scenarios. So in, investors and others can look at it and say, well, if we don't see a new economic paradigm with the recovering price, this is what we're going to see. And I think it's just become a lot more relevant, particularly to financial investors. It tended to be a bit more for policymakers and a bit more for industry participants themselves. But someone 
like yourself and your colleagues will be able to look at the next version and get a good sense of some of the burning issues such as secondary supply where the demand is coming from and okay. to that extent i think it'll be an enabler and uh, it will be a slow burn catalyst for that reason well so it sounds like it's it's evolving you know for someone like me you know i, I think you know, putting the price in there would be i can understand why you haven't but putting the price in there or at least having a, a flexible model where, where you can sort of uh look at the effects would be obviously much more useful and that's something that we would have to put in and using your assumptions so the the the, the you're, you're painting a picture of this uranium arena in which we play um the demand side i kind of get you know the you know the, that information i imagine is very very robust in the sense of you know how many reactors are there how many are coming on how many are being built how many are going to come online and and all of the associated um uh components there it's the supply side which kind of makes me wonder you know about the, the 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 detail here because you're getting that from producers developers explorers and you look you're you're forecasting these numbers so certainly the public companies they have to paint a rosy picture are the numbers accurate how do you ensure the numbers are accurate um and clearly it does for them it does matter what the price is so how do they give you those numbers without talking about price well it will always require additional interpretation and you're quite right the demand numbers are fairly robust obviously as we get out past 2030 uh, more judgment needs to be exercised and there is a natural conservatism in any body but particularly amongst the types of players that we've got here and uh, so even the upper scenario i think has got a lot of room for outperformance if we see policy changes and if we see china continuing the way that i think it has to but essentially they're reliable numbers they're robust the methodology is very robust and um, very detailed behind it you're quite right when it comes to uranium supply um, the requirement for the report is to rely on either public information or to rely on the response from questionnaires that are sent to the different asset so owners. That's a good point you, you make there. Sorry, before I forget, because I'm likely to, is um, <clears throat> the reliance on public information, the age of that information, the, well, quite frankly, the efficacy of that information. You know, where does it come from? This, you know, are the sources robust? Who's done it? Are they reliable? Do they know what they're talking about? Etc. Etc. So you know, how do you validate all of this? There's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, and um, essentially, you can't validate that when you're in the position of the WNA because you can't go out there and say we think that that asset is run by a bunch of scallywag promoters and we're just not going to take their numbers. You and I know that that is the case with some companies, uh, but the, it's not the WNA's position to do that. And uh, equally there's a lot of reasons why companies would uh, fail to update certain information it might not be in their interests to let the world know that they've got a technical challenge with something there is a baseline robustness because most of the uranium producers are publicly listed companies so there is that if we take some of the outliers out um, there is that credibility there are the rigor of the jork process and ni 43 101 and so forth so you get a pretty good level of 
information. But when it comes to timing, when it comes to ability to produce in certain economic outcomes and prospects of getting approvals and so on, that's where you'd certainly as the audience need to use your own judgment. The way that the report has quite appropriately considered all of this is they've basically said, right, we're going to take all of this public information and put it into the one bucket. So here is the theoretical amount of production that could possibly come on. And then we're going to make some assumptions about how much of that will realistically come on. Um, and they have concepts like reserve projects and concepts like unidentified supply. And I think in the, given the constraints, that's as well as you can possibly do. And then you know, I've been in a number of these debates where we sit around and we argue whether 65% is realistic in an upper supply scenario, whether it should be 45% and what sort of delays should be allocated. So there's been a lot, and this is a new uh, model and it's a new way of doing things and a new methodology that I think creates some level of realism to the whole picture. And then it's also disclosed quite well. So you could read it and you could say, well, you know, I'm looking at this array of different projects and I think 65 is still too optimistic or whatever your approach might be. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 so it sounds like it's evolved. Um, I say a lot of moving parts and we're going to have to say, well, thanks for making us aware of all of these components, treat each one individually and make your own assumptions on each of those variables to come up with your own number. Uh, I guess fund managers are going to find, <coughs> pardon me, I suppose fund managers are going to find that a lot easier than, you know, you know, a retail investor because they've got the necessary skills and ability to do that. And, you know, retail not may not necessarily. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what comes out. You know, we, sh we shouldn't prejudge. Um, there's, there's another report by UXC Forecast. Um, have you seen that? Or do you, do you get uh, that? I don't, I don't subscribe to UXC, but people tell me about stuff quite often. Do they? So, 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 well, no, just that, well, their, their, their whole um, uranium market forecast. What's, what's your take on what they're producing versus what you're producing? Mm. As Bannerman or as WNA? Sorry, with with your WNA hat on. Uh, yeah, so it's different. So UXC is designed to provide price forecasts, which we don't go near as WNA. Yeah. Um, they provide trade information. They have an agenda over time, which is to represent the interests of utilities and that has become more generalized in recent years, but I believe that it's still there. Whereas the World Nuclear Association is designed to represent the entire fuel industry, uh, the nuclear industry, including the fuel industry. So buyers, producers, developers, et cetera, et cetera. So the different, you get a very different type of information. The WNA information tends to be a lot more global and a lot more macro because it's right. often drawn upon by policymakers, whereas UXC information tends to be a lot more micro because it's individual utilities trying to make decisions on their procurement processes, for example. Okay, so the so for utilities, they're going to look at UXC um, for guidance. Uh, do you think they're going to find your report useful? Oh, most definitely. And I think the other point is even for investors, 
you might know everything that's in the fuel report. I actually don't think that'll be common because it's still very interesting, but you might know the bulk if you're very well informed and have your own views. Mm. But what you can do is you can read it and get an idea of what the industry thinks. And that's so important with uranium because sentiment still plays such a big role. It plays such a big role in the timing and intensity of utilities procurement decisions. It plays such a big role in the um, downstream part of the industry. And you mentioned the symposium in September. I'm going to be there with a lot of interest following exactly that point. What does the industry think? What I think is relevant for our internal strategy, but it's not so relevant for the development of the next six to 12 months. I wanna see what everyone else is talking about, what they're being told. There's been a huge amount of positive news in the nuclear industry, the nuclear power industry. And in many cases, the people in the downstream part of the nuclear power industry, they've got very complicated jobs. They're very clever people. They've got to concentrate really hard on it. And they only pop their head up and talk to the broader industry once or twice a year. So I think that'll be a crucial point for everyone to start getting bombarded with all of this very positive news and be able to take stock and say, gee, you know, it's been pretty hard since 2011, but we finally turned a corner. That'll be relevant because the utilities they won't be so accepting of the UXC view of the world, which is this low price is just going to continue forever and demand curves will be flat and nuclear is a dying industry and all of these things that might be quite helpful in a price negotiation with the producer, but actually don't help the overall health of the industry. That's a great answer. Well, let's wrap it up there. I appreciate your time, insightful as ever. And for those watching, do have a look at Bannerman. It's one of the better utility stories out there. Um, Brandon, thanks again for your time. I look forward to seeing you in September, hopefully, if we don't speak before. Uh, and gra you know, grab that beer, um, hopefully in the sunshine. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, September tends to be good. I enjoy the Indian summers that you can manage to put on most years in London. And <laughs> again, always great to chat and always great to get such probing questions. Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you wanna see more insightful, in-depth, honest and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching and we look forward to seeing you again soon.